maybe a little bit down okay. All right, so um, uh, welcome everybody. Uh, so this Sunday is Valentine's Day, and it is uh, Arizona Statehood Day, uh, and it's the first Sunday of Lent, and I'm not going to talk about any of those things, <laughs> um, because it is also uh, sort of uh, Evolution Sunday. This is a time when uh, those of us in the faith community who believe that um, science and religion can get along um, encourage churches throughout the country to spend one Sunday talking about issues of science and religion and how they work together. And um, that's actually what I want to start off with. Is I want to start off by talking in general about the relationship between science and religion. And, and I'm going to use that interchangeably with faith and reason. Um, science and reason is actually a little different. Faith and religion can be sometimes a lot different. But for purposes of today, I'm going to use those two terms interchangeably. So the first way is going to be the first slide. So go ahead, Kate. Uh, the Bible said it. I believe it. That sells it. So this is one, one way <laughs> of science and religion relationship, which is the absolute supremacy of uh, faith over reason. Now, this particular version of this is actually even more than that. It's sort of a, a literalism taking the words of the Bible as supreme, which I personally think is sinful. I think that's actually idolatry, but that's neither here nor there. There are other more subtle, more nuanced ways that aren't as good for bumper stickers of ways that you can think of faith as being absolutely supreme to religion. That is not, I mean, to science. That is not the point of view that I'm going to encourage today. So let's look at the next option. This is from Neil deGrasse Tyson. Good thing about science, it's true whether you believe it or not. Now, a couple things about that. First off, uh, NDT is going right at religion with this, okay? This isn't. This isn't a neutral statement, right? He's very aggressively saying science is right whether you like it or not. Now, this is represents the point of view of sort of science as supreme over religion. And again, this is a bumper sticker version, right? I think it probably more subtly would be stated as uh, the, the tenets of science are true regardless of whether they're subjectively believed or not believed. Um, but that doesn't fit as well on the slide, and it's not quite as fun. You can't tweet it out as well. This is also not the point of view that I'm going to, that I'm going to suggest that we adopt or that I'm going to promote today. Let's go to the next one. Now this, my suspicion is, this point of view has, would have some fans in this room, which is, let's just two separate spheres, okay? Um, reason and science are over here, and uh, faith and religion are over here, and they, they just do their own thing. And this comes from the idea that, look, yeah, we know that bit in Genesis about a solid wall that separates the water above and the water below. We know it says that, but we also, we believe that the moon landing happened, right? And we believe there are galaxies, and we believe the sun is the center of the solar system. So we like science to deal with that part of it. But we've also looked up at the night sky and have felt something in our hearts, the presence of God, when we look out at the Grand Canyon or when we've seen the waves crashing, right? So that's faith. And we know that there's this thing called microwave radiation. You can measure it. You can determine the universe is 13.8 billion years old. And we, we pretty much believe this species came into existence uh, because of natural selection. And, and you know, we, we, we accept that about biology, the biology of science, right? But at the same time, we've looked at the smile of an infant. And that's more than an evolved technique to support infants, right? We felt that in our heart, we've seen the presence of God. When we get sick, we go to the doctor. 
When we take antibiotics, there's more than a few of us in here that have mechanically constructed joints, right? We believe in medicine, okay? But we've also felt the power of prayer. And so it's comfortable for us, particularly as Americans who have this, this idea of separation of church and state, let's just import that in here, and we just have separation of faith and reason. Here's the problem with that. Faith is not a philosophy. Faith is a means by which we live our lives. It's teaching us how to love, and it's teaching us that we are loved, and it is impacting people in the world, okay? And because of that, it is impacting people who are governed by politics and, gov and governments. It's impacting a people who live in a world that is described by science. So unfortunately, as neat and tidy as it would be to just go into our own corners, I don't think that really works. I think that relegates faith to too small a position. And I think it ignores the impact that science can have on our understanding of God's creation. So that means I'm going to say that we should do the next one, which is we should have faith-informed, reason-based choices. In other words, when we're thinking about our world, we should, that should be informed by faith. Likewise, we should have reason-informed, faith-based choices. So our faith should not be completely um, absent of the world that we live in, okay? So let's go to the first one here, and we'll talk about, we'll talk about faith-informed, reason-based choices. So to do this, to, so you can understand what I'm saying, I'm going to talk about today's scripture. Today's scripture from Deuteronomy is interesting. Um, Deuteronomy, as you might know, contains a lot of laws. What to eat, what not to eat, how to do sacrifices, where to, where to burn, in, uh, burn incense and animals and all that kind of stuff, right? This passage in chapter 26 is at the end of that. It sort of caps off a listing of the law. And it, it has um, a sort of powerful overview of how the people of Israel should relate to the world that they live in, specifically to the promised land. Um, the, next, the next slide has a, a called out a piece of this, this scripture. Once you have entered the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and you take possession of it, and you settle there. So I want to point out here that the concept is that the promised land was an inheritance for the people of Israel. This should ring true to everyone in this room that recognizes our presence on this earth in the biosphere is a gift. We did not create the biosphere. We did not earn the oxygen we breathe or the water we drink. It was there for us when we came here. And I want to note that, by the way, that's true whether you believe that it was given to you by a God, by God, or whether you believe that there were a series of events of um, over a 13 billion year history that led a universe without consciousness to evolve a creature with consciousness that could look back on the beauty of the universe that unconsciously created. That should give you a little bit of chills, no matter what you think about the existence of God. And my point is, whether or not there is a God is a fact that this little thin layer of fluid that goes around the planet that we live on is ours, but we didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. So I think that's an important lesson that we can get from this when we are dealing with our planet, just as when the Israelites were talking about dealing with the promised land. I'm going to take a quick aside here. 
the Lord in this and in your Bible is in lower small caps. And what that means is, that means that it's the um, tetragram for the proper name of God, which is usually, sometimes for Latin letters we do Y-H-W-H, okay? Just so you know, that started out as God, the war God of the Israelites on a particular mountain, okay? And over time it evolved, and people said, well, no, it's not just God on the mountain, it's God, God is with us everywhere. Even when we go to Babylon, even when we get, go out to the city, right? And then eventually we recognize, no, it's actually everyone's God. There's, not, there's only one God, right? So my point is that this idea of God continues to evolve. Some of us think of God as everything and then some, right? Because that's called panentheism. That's my idea. Abby thinks it's a heresy. She's probably right. But um, there are, others, <laughs> there are other, other ideas that God responds to us. That's process theology. That's heresy too, right? That's also heresy. So my point is that, my point is that Marcus Borg is a theologian. He used to say when people told him they didn't believe in God, he said, tell me about the God you don't believe in. That's a legit question, okay? Because the idea of God evolves and changes. So in any case, no matter what your metaphysics are, it should strike you that this planet, this earth that we live in is an inheritance. I want to point something out. Let's go to the next little uh, excerpt here. Then celebrate all the good things the Lord your God has done to you, each of you, along with the Levites and the immigrants who are among you. Um, I've called out the immigrants here because the immigrants are especially identified. First off, I want to say that this is another thing. It tells us we have to think about the context of the story, what's the context of the story, and what's the intended content of the story, right? If uh, at the Lord's table today, when we get up to invite people to communion, and somebody says, uh, everyone is welcome to communion, even the immigrants, right? Sven might say, hey, you can step back on just the immigrants, okay, right? So because that would be suggesting immigrants are somehow lesser, right? This passage is not teaching us that immigrants are lesser. It's assuming the context of where immigrants are lesser, right? And then the message is celebrate with the immigrants too. Celebrate with everyone. Celebrate even with the people that maybe in your world you wouldn't necessarily celebrate with. And you'll recall that in between here, there was that discussion, that passage of your father was a wandering Aramean, that reminder that um, in the context with which the Israelites came in, to Egypt was, I mean, out of Egypt and into Israel was out of a place of poverty, out of a place of wanting, out of a place of need, okay? And this is where I think that faith can do the most work to help us make our reason-based decisions because faith can give us a vocabulary and a framework to describe these things that we don't have if we're just speaking purely objectively. Uh, the Green Brothers are a couple of guys that do blogs and, and they do YouTube channels. When they talk about the value of overcoming some of the problems we're going to talk about, they say, well, we'd like to encourage, we'd like to proceed to have continued increasing technology, increasing complexity. Well, the pursuit of increasing complexity, right, isn't the kind of thing that moves people to action, okay? What are the things that move people to action? The next slide, I think, is the values that come out of this, this passage. So... Thankfulness, right? So this is giving us moral language that we can use to talk about. Be thankful for the creation that was given to you. Be humble. You didn't get, you didn't deserve this earth. You do not deserve this biosphere. So treat it in a way as someone who received it as a gift. Discipline. I skipped over, but there are questions about obeying the law. Discipline, I think, is interesting when we're talking about how to treat our planet because it means you it means you have to stay with doing things that are hard. Maybe stuff has to cost more. 
Maybe you don't advance as fast, right? Maybe you don't have as much energy. Those are discipline issues. But the scripture gives us a context for asking for this. And then hospitality. Being kind to the immigrant, being kind to the outsider, is a core value of Christians that I think can apply when we are making reason-based decisions. Okay, so that's the context on that side. Let's go to the next one. Now let's talk about the other direction of this. And I want to be clear that I'm talking about something different now. Before I was talking about understanding the context of the passage. So that means you do things like you, you study, well, what did, what, did, what did Yahweh mean? What did that word mean, Yahweh? And, and what did it mean when they talked about immigrants and aliens? And understanding the context of what the author meant to say in writing those words. But now what I'm going to talk about is how when our world changes, and going back to our faith and saying, I understand the context of that scripture, but now the world is a different place. And so we need a different lesson. So for example, if we go to the next slide, it's going to show you, um, the next one, I'm sorry. It's going to show you, um, this is the way the people in that time lived. This is the cycle of their life. They um, gathered the olives, and the olives were what they used to make oil, and, olive, and they pressed the olive oil. Then they would sow uh, barley and wheat. But they couldn't sow the barley and wheat until it rained, because the ground was too hard. So they had to wait until it rained, and then they could... Then they could till the land and they could sow the cereal. Then they would sow lentils, which are something that kind of regenerates the, the ground, and chickpeas, and put those in. Then while that stuff is growing, there's like a month or two when their activity is pulling, pulling the grass that they're going to use for hay, or pulling weeds. Then when the earth produces grain, they harvest the grain. Then at the end of the cycle, they harvest the grapes. And now they're ready to harvest the olives again. My point is these are people who were totally connected to the land, okay? The land drove their activities. The land meant their society in every way. And so that's the context of the scripture that comes out of That's not the world we live in, okay? On the next slide, I'm gonna show you the population of the earth. Now, it's kind of hard to see that graph because that green line on the bottom looks like a border, but it's not. This is all the population, it's basically immeasurable, all the way up until about 1500, okay? In the first 250,000 years, there was something called a human being. Nine billion humans lived and died in the first 250,000 years. In the thousand years since then, 60 billion have lived and died, and eight of them or seven of them are alive now. There are roughly as many humans alive today as lived and died during the first 250,000 years of humans. Let's look at the next one. This is the next slide. This is a, this is a graph you've seen, which is a carbon dioxide over the last 9,000 years. And you can see that at about the same time that we had that massive explosion in, in uh, uh, population, we see a massive explosion in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, changing profoundly the nature of the air on the planet. Okay? We are changing the biosphere, not the other way around. Let's do one more that's a little bit more, a little, pays a little bit more explanation. Plants need nitrogen to grow. Okay, those farmers that were, that were growing the olives and the lentils, they need nitrogen to be, they need nitrogen to grow, but it has to be accessible. It has to be, quote, fixed nitrogen. 
The way nitrogen used to be fixed, like, you know, real, real long time ago, like 1920. The way that nitrogen used to be fixed was there was a bacteria that would take nitrogen out of the air and convert it into nitrogen from the N2, which is a really hard molecule to break apart. It would convert it into N2O and uh, N3O, and that makes it a little bit more accessible, and then they can make it into ammonia, and then the plant can use it. Okay, this bacteria would do that. Um, the other thing that would do that is lightning, because lightning has enough energy that when lightning goes through, it breaks that bond of the nitrogen in the air. And then the other thing, humans did figure out, we can help when we plant um, beans, legumes. Have, they just have a nature, and it's actually another bacteria that's on their roots that breaks it up, okay? So up until about 1900, that bar there gives you a measure of the amount of fixed nitrogen that was absorbed every year by the whole planet. In about 1900, a problem happened. We didn't have enough nitrogen. Now, the population of the Earth was moving towards 2 billion, and we didn't have enough nitrogen to have 2 billion people. So a scientist named Haber came up with a way to manufacture it by passing extremely hot, extremely high pressurized air over a catalyst, and that makes human-made fertilizer. You also make it when you burn fossil fuels. But the, the good news from Potter's invention is that now the population can go above two billion on its way to the eight billion. Um, Potter also did some of the most evil stuff that human beings have ever done. And I, I literally will leave that to the exercise of the reader, but Potter is a evil person. Uh, but he did figure out a way for us to continue living. So that's economic important. But here's the thing. By 1950, you start to see those blue lines, the dark blue and the orange lines. Those two lines represent the amount of nitrogen that's being absorbed in the planet based on human activity. And then let's go ahead and add the gray line too. Because the gray line, that is human. We're planting beans and humans are doing that, right? Dogs aren't doing that. Humans are doing that. Today, the amount of nitrogen being absorbed by the plant as a result of human activity exceeds the amount that was being absorbed naturally, totally. Okay? We put more nitrogen into the earth on purpose so that we can continue being humans than the world does on its own. Okay, let's go on. And that brings us to the Anthropocene. The Anthropocene is an idea is that humans have so much impact on the world that this is a geological epoch. This is a new time that the humans are changing the globe in such a way that we cover it and we're pushing other species out and driving them into extinction in record numbers. Like as if a meteor hit the planet numbers. We are changing the air profoundly. We are changing the rocks so that if all humans cease to exist today, extraterrestrial geologists in the future would come back and say, what happened? Jeez, what happened right about 1,000? That changed, that planet changed at its core. Okay, and this is where we, as a people of faith, have to take in that information. And we have to recognize that when we're talking about how we address the creation, we have a responsibility that the Israelites did not have. Because they were bound by the earth, and the earth was bending them. We are bending the earth. And we have a responsibility to take our faith and to understand it in the context of the world that we live in. Because this is a gift, and we have to be good stewards, but our responsibility to be good stewards is gone up by a factor of 10 or hundreds or whatever you want to think about it. 
It's, it's completely different. Because now we can make changes to the world that would have been impossible, unthinkable, at the time that our scriptures were written. So that's where I'm going to end. Is I'm leaving this with a challenge to you, as a people of God, who understand the value of science and faith. To take these lessons that we have from faith and to help us when we're making decisions about how to impact the environment. And also to take these information we have about the environment and use it to shape our faith so that our faith continues to be relevant and that our faith continues to have the capacity to say something to the world and the people.